0: Welcome to What She Said. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. It's been a week now since the clock sprung ahead. Are you still feeling the effects of daylight savings time too? Don't worry, you're not alone. I'm right there with you. But let's focus on the positive. At least our car clocks are finally back on track. And speaking of things that are always on track, I've got another exciting episode of What She Said lined up for you today. As usual, I've been scouring the country to bring you the most fascinating and entertaining voices out there, so sit back, relax, and get ready for a dose of Canada's finest. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store. Do you know what a pretendian is? If you haven't heard this term before, you'll definitely want to listen to my interview with Dr. Pan Pometer from Toronto Metropolitan University, who joins me to discuss this harmful trend for Indigenous communities, some prominent examples of pretendians, and what is being done about it. It's a bittersweet time for parents of teens in their final year of high school as they start to prepare for a new reality in September in university. On one hand, you can't bear the thought of them leaving, and on the other, you're excited to see them embark on this new chapter. But there's a space in between that we are not talking about enough, and that's how they will manage without you. Allie Payne joins me to share how to get your kids psychologically ready for this monumental transition. Anne Brody is in with New Entertainment, and this week we have so much to get to. We start with a look at two Canadian gems, Clement Virgo's brother and Rice Boy from Korean-Canadian filmmaker Anthony Shim. The new documentary Ithaca takes a look at the controversial Julian Assange, and Apple TV Plus has Extrapolations, a new ecodrama that envisions what the world may look like as climate change intensifies over the coming years. Romina Morris, an expert on anti-racism and anti-oppression, is here to discuss race-based drama and its impact. Ramina is a strong advocate for social justice and human rights and has used her privilege as a leader to draw attention to systemic inequities and demand change. Rana Bakari has been described as Canada's own Erin Brockovich and is committed to improving the lives of people far beyond the political arena she works in. When Rana was running for mayor in her hometown of Winnipeg, she was alerted to asbestos in water and began to dig deeper. She has since started asbestosfreewater.ca and joins me to share why municipalities across the country need to be addressing degrading water pipes now. Finally, Chloe Carolyn's music radiates a warm, authentic SoCal vibe with a subliminal message for people to live their truth and spread their light. She is here today to discuss her latest album, The Awakening, with us before we listen to the single, Afraid of the Dark. It's another full week at what she said, with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now. My next guest is a professor and chair in Indigenous governance at Toronto Metropolitan University. She has four university degrees and specializes in Indigenous and constitutional law. Dr. Pam Pomater has been studying, volunteering, and working on First Nation issues for over 30 years, particularly on social, political, and legal matters such as poverty, treaty rights, and education. Her latest book Warrior Life Indigenous Resistance and Resurgence challenges genocide racism and oppression of indigenous peoples. She is joining me today to discuss the alarming trend of pretendians. Welcome to the show Pam.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for covering this important issue.
0: Well, I think first we have to define it. So what is a pretendian and why is it harmful for non-Indigenous people to be claiming Indigenous ancestry?
1: Most important question, I would say, of the decade, it's uh, a pretendian is someone who is not Indigenous, who pretends to be Indigenous uh, for exploitative purposes, you know, uh, they they think that they'll get a job or they'll get research funding set aside for Native people or they'll get awards, uh, Native awards, or they will be the voice of Native people. Or they just simply want to distance themselves from all of the history of colonization on Indigenous peoples. And they is, uh, assume that if they adopt the identity, they don't have to be responsible. That's a pretendian. But more importantly, what isn't a pretendian? Because this can be really misunderstood. People who were forcibly adopted out of their communities or their native families when they were young because of the 60s scoop or foster care system, they're not pretendians. They're searching their way back home and to reconnect, but they're not pretendians. These are people who are forcibly separated. People who lost contact with their families during Indian residential school days or day school days, they are not pretendians. But pretendians hurt those people trying to reconnect. Because they're searching for their documents, their families, their communities, and they get lumped in with, oh, look, you're just like all of the other pretendians, and that hurts their journey back home. So they hurt them first and foremost. Um, They take away jobs. uh, They take away awards. They take away resources. They take away positions. You name it. Anything that's targeted at Indigenous peoples, like Indigenous student grants, for example. When pretendians come in and swoop all of that up for themselves... They've taken that away from Native people. So we think we're in a process of reconciliation where we're trying to make amends. Well, it's not going to work if it's all going to non-Native people trying to be Indians. Are there some prominent examples of pretendians that you can share? Oh, my goodness, so many. So look at the author Joseph Boyden. For years and years and years, he pretended to be the Indigenous writer. He was all over the media. He was the voice for Native people on things like reconciliation. Of course, an investigation is done and it's proven he's not native at all. He doesn't apologize. He tries to backtrack. He tries to dig in. And ultimately, no one talks about Joseph Boyden anymore. Thank goodness. Um But there's been others. There's been people like Carrie Boris. She was the... Uh, at the University of Saskatchewan. She claimed to be multiple different Indigenous identities. So did Joseph Boyden. And when people count, called her on it, she denied it and doubled down. And then there was an investigation done. I mean, these things aren't hard to prove. And then now she doesn't work at the University of Saskatchewan anymore. And there's Michelle Latimer. She was in the arts. She claimed to be an Indigenous producer and writer and everything. It was proven that she wasn't. She tried to double down, not apologize. She no longer works on those projects, and I think the most recent ones are Mary Ellen Terpelafon, a a former judge and lawyer who has, you know, claimed to be Indigenous her whole life, found out that she isn't. So she no longer works at UBC. Her honorary doctorates are being removed, and now we have a new one in Newfoundland. The head of uh, Memorial University of Newfoundland, um, uh, Vianne Timmons, she's claimed to be Mi'kmaq from my community. People knew she wasn't Mi'kmaq. It's She's been found out, all the genealogical documents are there, and she's doubling down saying, no, 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 I, I, I am. So it's a real problem because they're almost always in positions of power and influence, and they're taking up places from real Native people. Are there criminal charges involved when people pull off this kind of fraud? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question because there are people who are advocating to add that kind of identity fraud to the criminal code, and they want universities and governments and institutions to develop policies around identity fraud, both, you know, to prevent it first off, but then how do you discipline it afterwards? So far, the process has been the institutional do an investigation, and then you're removed from that position that you applied for, especially if it was an Indigenous position or an Indigenous award. So... But we need something more than that. We need to stop it from the very beginning. So when you hire an Indigenous person for anything, and think of how many businesses and institutions and everything else that that would impact, you need to make sure you're dealing with an actual Indigenous person. Do we want you to be racist and humiliating and degrading? No. But you can come up with policies in partnership with local First Nations on how to address that and where there are say, ambiguities or uncertainties, then allow Indigenous people in your organization or your First Nation partners to be the arbiters of whether or not that person is Indigenous. Because the last thing we want is people to just continue harm on Indigenous peoples. But it's very simple. I make my accountability statement all the time. I'm from the Mi'kmaq Nation, but saying that's not good enough. I'm a band member of Eel River Bar First Nation. I'm a registered Indian under the Indian Act. Should I have to be registered? Should I have to constantly prove myself? No. But that's what pretendians have done to us. Now we have to constantly prove that we're actually who we are.
0: Pam, I want people to be able to know more about this and obviously keep up with all of the other issues you cover on a regular basis. What is the best way to keep up with you and all you do?
1: My website, pampometer.com, has everything. I have YouTube videos about pretendians. I have lots of podcasts with other Native people about Pretendians, and I have writings on Pretendians. I'm in the process of writing more. You you basically can get everything in one-stop shop on on my website.
0: All right, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Pam.
1: Thanks for having me, and like I said, for covering this issue. It's really important.
2: (laughs) More of What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up.
0: Are you looking for authentic, high-quality, and handcrafted seal fur and leather products created by Canadian Indigenous fashion designers and artists? Look no further than Proudly Indigenous Crafts and Designs, or Pick and D for short. Their e-commerce platform celebrates and showcases the skill and creativity of indigenous fashion designers and artists. These innovative artists combine traditional sewing techniques with a contemporary approach to create modern and timeless accessories, footwear, clothing, and home decor products. And when you buy from pick and D you are not just getting a beautiful and authentic seal product you're also supporting indigenous communities proudly indigenous products are natural eco-friendly and of the highest quality so visit proudlyindigenouscrafts.com today and experience the beauty of indigenous craftsmanship pick and D proudly showcasing indigenous fashion and supporting indigenous communities la, la.
2: And now, back to What She Said. Here's Candace Sampson.
0: Allie Payne, What She Says expert on parenting teens, is back. And today, we're looking at college. From navigating the application process to managing the transition to campus life, Allie joins me with some valuable tips and advice for parents looking to ensure their teen's success in college. Welcome back, Allie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I can almost... Hear the tears. It's the that mixed reaction. It's joy and and distress at, at uh, you know losing your teen and sending them away at the same time.
3: I know, right? <laughs> it is mixed. It is mixed. And you know, I get parents that um, write to me about this all the time after they've left, and I think that there's a lot we can do before they leave to avoid some of the. Um, resentment, communication breakdown, um, and just setting
0: our teen up for success before we send them off. So what's the first thing that that parents and teens should do? Or is it something that you try to um, give the teen a lot of autonomy in terms of, of next steps? Yeah, I think
3: that autonomy is critical. Uh, now, there's like a couple key areas I want to cover really quick. So first of all, um, in, in the U.S. and Canada, for the most part, applications already have to be in. But there are colleges where you can still be applying. Um, and even though applications are in, you may not have gotten acceptances yet. So you don't know where your, your student's going. So I'm not going to talk too much about the college application process, except to say this, that if your teenager is resisting it or not seeming to want to be part of it, I need you to get your foot off the gas because there is something going on behind that. That is not your agenda. So that's a separate conversation. So, autonomy is key because when your teen is, if they are, and particularly living away from college, okay, I'm not talking about necessarily where you are staying at home, I'm talking about where they're living away. If you are currently your teenager's success strategy across the board, and this is what I mean, if you wake them up for school every morning, you are their success strategy. If you monitor and make sure they do all their homework, you are their success strategy. If you do all their laundry and all of their cooking, you are their success strategy. And as much as many parents believe, but that's my job, that's being a good parent because somehow it got conflated with morality, um, that is absolutely setting your teen teen up to fail when they are away at university. So there is the need for them to build autonomy Because then I get the same parents saying, I am checking their attendance and they haven't, they've been late to classes and they're not showing up. And I'm thinking, well, hang on, were you waking them up every morning when they were home? Like, where did we think this was gonna? So your teen, if they are choosing to attend post-secondary education and going to be living away, then now, now is the time to say, okay, I am not going to be your success strategy on every front anymore how can i support you to develop your own strategy for getting up on time and making sure you get to class on time because i'm not going to be there when you're at university and i don't want it to be a massive fall from grace because i didn't step back now to help you build some of that so waking up in the morning do they know how to do basic meals do they know how to do laundry i know this sounds ridiculous. But these are things that actually reduce anxiety and build confidence as your teen is moving out of home for the first time, not just to go work, but then they've got all the academic pressures, let alone the how to live pressures. And so they need to know these basic skills. That's one thing. The second part I want to quickly touch on is that you and your teenager need to have some agreements because again, I get messages from parents all the time saying, this is not what I'm paying for. And now they're, they're misusing my funds and all of the things totally understand that resentment. Very fair. Did you make an agreement with your team prior to them leaving? What, what does your money, what does respect for your money look like? And is that reasonable? Because I'm going to say, if you are monitoring your teenager's attendance while they are away at college, that's a you. That's an issue. Like, they want greater autonomy. They want that kind of independence. And even though you may not trust them, that's an issue. So I need you to talk about struggle. Talk about failure. University and college is not high school. It is absolutely not the same. You've got to talk about how different it is. Talk about expectations, their expectations of themselves. I went from a straight A student in grade 12 to almost failing at a university because it was so different and I didn't, I wasn't enjoying it, but I didn't know that it was okay to struggle. I didn't know it was okay to change programs. I didn't, like, we've got to talk about this whole situation instead of we're taking this This child that may have been in an environment that was quite controlled for them. And now we're putting them in an environment where they're literally like a kite flying out in the wind. And then we are cheesed because they're misusing our hard earned funds.
0: Yeah, that's, this is such good advice because I feel, you know, it's an exciting time and parents get excited and teens get excited. But then we fail, we sort of gloss over the everyday living that has to happen once they're away from your home. Right, let alone
3: academic expectations, which we need to be careful of, because again, C's get degrees. So let's just, you know, high school is not university. And is it okay to change a class? What does it mean to withdraw? What if you don't like that teacher? Do you understand what a syllabus is? Why is it important to know when your midterms and exams are and how much they are of your total grade? These are things that you need to talk about with your teen now. (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right. Well, Ali, I know you have uh, a lot of information on this over on your website. So where can people find out more? Uh, they can find my website at alipain.com A-L-Y-P-A-I-N or on Instagram and TikTok at allypain. All right. Thank you so much, Ali. This is enlightening it's- as usual. It is a busy, busy week at Saturday Night at the Movies, so Anne Brody is here. We're going to jump right into it. Let's start with Brother, Anne.
4: Oh my God, what a beautiful film from Clement Virgo, one of our great masters of film in Canada. It concerns a low-income black family in Scarborough um, and the struggles that they go through, but he, he sets it in this world that is almost mystical, and it, it, it's... It's beautiful. The music's great. The The framing, the performances, it just break your heart. Um, it cuts really deep. Uh, and it's set in the 1980s and 1990s. And actually, there's a clip of Master T from Much Music on TV. But it's about, you know, the limitations of poverty and dashed hopes. And it has a sense of being an elegy.
0: Yeah, it looks beautiful and heavy at the oh. same time uh is that in theaters mm-hmm. and it is yes you can see it all right excellent tell me about rice boy that looks like another powerful movie well it is
4: brother and rice boy were two of the three contenders for the tfca best canadian film rice boy won but the, the these two brother and rice boy are just out of this world so this mm-hmm. is from um anthony shim who is an actor this is only his uh, second film feature, and it concerns um, a young Korean boy and his mother growing up in Toronto. He's bullied f- b- for eating Asian food at school. He's he's had a tough time. Then we jump down and meet him as a teenager, and he's kind of hardened. Um, and they face a lot of problems, the two of them. They're not getting along, the mother and, and, and the boy. So... Ultimately, they go on a trip to Korea to meet her dead husband's family. It is so incredibly moving. Honestly, you'll just be in tears. Um, So that is definitely one to, uh, definitely one. Rice Boy Sleeps, wow.
0: All right, let's continue on with the deep and heavy subjects, Ithaca.
4: Yes, Ithaca. Okay, so Julian Assange is awaiting an appeal. Um, the U.S. is trying to extradite him to the States where he, if if he's sent, will likely be found guilty of espionage and put in the most maximum security prison in the States for 175 years. So his father, his elderly father, is hitting the road to campaign for him. He has been for the past couple of years so he and a, and a filmmaker got together to follow his journey and to see what's happening. And through Assange's wife and their children, the phone calls they make, you can see how how deteriorated Assange is. He's in very, very bad shape. So they're working really hard. So the, uh, the UK turned down the, the U.S. request for extradition, but the U.S. is appealing. So that's in limbo right now. It's just heart-wrenching and what he did he thought was good to release these uh, documents of uh, U.S. war crimes in Iraq on WikiLeaks. So
0: yeah I I honestly have to say I don't know enough about the Julian Assange case to make a you know judgment call one way or the other but this looks fascinating and so I think I will dive into this one for sure. Where is that available Ann?
4: That is at the Hot Docs Film Festival, uh, and it runs daily in person from the 19th to the 26th. But,
0: Candice, you can get it online. All right. Excellent. I want to talk about extrapolations because I actually saw the trailer for this before you sent it to me, and I was immediately fascinated with it. So let's talk about that one.
4: It is so cool. It, well, Cool
0: hot maybe <laughs> it,
4: it's so hot it concerns climate change it's got a star-studded cast i mean merrill street sienna miller diane lane etc etc so it catches up with people who are existing in the world in uh 2037 46 47 59 2007 and 2077 it shows their progress, what is becoming of the world. It is terrifying. The artistry in it makes it really drives it home and and the special effects. Um, we've known since nineteen sixty two in Rachel Carson's book Silent Spring, we've known that humans have chipped away at the world for greed and money and all of this. And it's got to turn around. This series on Apple TV Plus I hope will change minds it is alarming absolutely alarming they say that if uh the earth temperature rises by by two degrees that's it so you know it rises in uh segments over these years chilling brilliant way to do it
0: all right we're gonna watch that for sure apple tv plus uh we have time for one more so let's talk about the boston strangler really quick tell me all about it
4: the Boston Strangler concerns two women, played by Kira Knightley and Carrie Coon, two women who broke the case of who was the Boston Strangler. Um, the police dismissed them. It was a long fight. Uh, and, you know, Kira plays a woman who was a lifestyle editor. She became obsessed with this thing and and continued on. One of the most interesting films on this subject matter that I've seen, and it, it celebrates these women who I never heard of before. So it is really worth it.
0: All right. That's on Disney, right? Yes. All right. Thank you, Anne. That was a packed week, but I'm sure you're going to have more for us next week. I will. Yes. All right. See you, you next you. week. Do, do,
2: do, do. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming right up. La, la. And now, back to what she said. Here's Candace Sampson.
0: To really understand ourselves, we have to acknowledge and understand how our social identities influence our entire lived experiences. Romina Morris is an expert on anti-racism and anti-oppression and has spent over 20 years in leadership positions in the human services sector and is currently the director of anti-racism and anti-oppression for the City of London. Ramina is a strong advocate for social justice and human rights and has used her privilege as a leader to draw attention to systemic inequities and demand change. Today she joins me to discuss race-based trauma therapy and support. Welcome to What She Said, Romina. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me about the impact of racism on individuals and communities and why it's important to address it as trauma?
5: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's fundamental to understanding how racism impacts people, and as you said, and communities. Um, and the best way that I would describe it is if you think about what we call a microaggression, something that is a, a, a an offensive othering kind of comment to an individual. That person experiences in that in that moment as a slight, as a snub, as an othering. And so, on a very micro level, that's an ouch. That hurts, and that makes us question our sense of place, our sense of uh, worthiness. It does all of that on a very micro level, but it similarly also reminds us of the traumas and things that have been said over a course of a lifetime. So if I'm called a name in this moment that is um, racially charged, it also reminds me in that moment, as much as it hurts in this very instant, of all the times that I've been hurt and harmed because of the way that I look, the body that I'm in. So it's it's charged in a bigger way than just, it, it's not just in isolation of the lived experience that I have and I bring to the table. In addition to that, though, it also, you mentioned communities, and we have to remember that when we are harmed in that one moment and it impacts it, the impact of it in our lifetime is also at play, we're also reminded of how other people in similar bodies in our communities, in our generations before us, have similarly experienced this kind of harm. So it's not just in and of itself this moment that I experience harm. I'm reminded of how it's harmed me for years, my entire life, and the harm that has happened to my ancestors, to my community, to people that look like me. Uh, So it's much bigger than just the moment. And so when we think about the impact of trauma, any type of trauma, it can be one major incident You have a horrific car accident, you're in it, you watch it, it's trauma. And that can really dysregulate you and cause a lot of damage. Similarly, trauma can also be experienced with lots of minor, if you will, smaller, repeated incidents, lots of violence in the home, for example, being abused as a child over a course of a lifetime, experience that as trauma this is no different. One major incident, I'm called a horrific name, or I'm fired because of the body that I'm in, that's major and it can cause trauma. Similarly, a lifetime of being othered and othered and having to justify my right to take up space can be experienced as trauma. So if we're going to heal people, we really have to come at it from that from that lens in terms of understanding it as trauma.
0: You know, and it's funny, it's not funny, it's, it's heartbreaking really, but microaggressions, I think, for people who have never experienced them. So white people who don't experience microaggressions may dismiss that as because micro implies small, Mm. but microaggressions Mm -hmm. compile. Right. And I'd heard it explained to me in a podcast you and I recorded, um, with Salam about intersectional feminism, about death by a thousand cuts.
5: Yeah. And,
0: and that really impacted me thinking about that because it's not just a one time thing.
5: It's a lot and it just compiles and builds over time. If I can just explain that, because it's, it's a bit of a misnomer to think that it's small. Micro in, yeah. the, in, in the term microaggression is actually requi- is requiring us to understand that it's happening on an individual basis. It's a one-on-one. It's you and me, you say something, it others me. It, it, the alternative is macro, where the system is doing harm. So when we say micro, we don't mean small like it's nothing. We mean it's micro on a, on a systemic level. It's you and I. It's very individual. Um, and it is, it is, it, it, and ongoingly, it has experienced a significant harm. How could it not be? The other thing I would say is, white people do experience microaggressions. White trans folks, white women, uh, white people experience white True. people who are neuro, neurodivergent. They experience microaggressions all the time. People from the queer community who are white. So it's not that microaggressions are not designated to racialized people. They're really designated to people who are not part of what we call the dominant group. Right? They're just not part of the majority. And so othering in that way happens all the time, and not not exclusively to racialized people. It's often very um, guise as well, I would say, as uh, a joke, as very well-intentioned. I would say most microaggressions are very well-meaning um, so they can be very misunderstood because they don't understand why you're taking this so deeply. It was just a joke or I was just curious. I just wanted to know what your hair feels like. I didn't mean to offend you. And so the other piece about microaggressions is that we very much sit in our own feelings about what we intended, as opposed to the impact on the person that we're harming in that moment, as defined by that person. And it can get complicated because people will say, I've said this joke to my neighbor. He's black. He left. What's your problem? And I would say that that is the, the, the nuance piece is that people will experience microaggressions differently based on their lived experience, based on the day that they're having, based on who you are in relation to them. If you're my boss, I might be inclined to not say something. If you're my grandmother, I might sit down and have a chat with you. So there's a lots of nuances in understanding microaggressions.
0: That's actually the best Explanation of microaggressions mm. I've ever heard. So thank you so much. That is very well, amazing. Uh, so I, I we don't have a lot of time. Actually, we we're we're running yep. out of time. So uh, how can people connect with you? Um, follow your work. Find out more about uh, you know seeking out, um, I guess, uh, therapy for all of the mm. trauma they've accumulated over the years.
5: Yeah, I specifically work with folks from from a trauma lens. And so certainly anyone who's in an equity body to really help them understand what it is to be in bodies uh, and in places and spaces where they were not designed for them. And so I'm generally on LinkedIn, I have a website, Romina um, And that's where people can link up with me to get some support. So that those are the main two places. I am also on Instagram as well. All right, I think we're going
0: to have to have you back again because this is a much bigger conversation and we can't wrap for it up sure. in six minutes. So we're going to do this again, Love Ramina. It. But in the meantime, uh, we're going to put all of this in the liner notes of the podcast so people can keep up yeah. with you and follow your work. Thank you so much for joining Wonderful. me today. Thanks, Candace. Access to clean drinking water is a basic human right and is necessary for sustainable development and poverty reduction. It's something we don't think a lot about in Canada, but we definitely should be. Our nation's drinking water infrastructure is woefully in need of repair, not to mention that older pipes may be lined with lead or asbestos. My next guest has been described as Canada's own Erin Brockovich and is committed to improving the lives of people far beyond the political arena she works in. Rana Bokeri is a highly respected legal expert, the youngest person to be elected to party leader in Manitoba's political history, and the founder of Asbestos-Free Water, a clean water initiative. She joins me today to share more about the why behind her organization. Welcome to the show, Rana.
6: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So how did you fall into
0: this? What alerted you to asbestos in our water?
6: Um. A simple answer is uh, I ran for mayor, and during in Winnipeg, and um, during that election, uh, like most of us do, we we dive deep into municipal issues. Um, this issue specifically, um, in regards to uh, asbestos in water, that's actually, in my opinion, it's more of a federal issue. It's it's a national issue. It's not very. It's not so deeply rooted in any one municipality, uh, because during the '30s and the 1940s. Um, it was a it was an easy way to line pipes, uh, you know. It was across the world that we were using um, asbestos cement pipes to to service our homes. Uh, you know, so when you're turning on your tap, uh, a question that Canadians need to ask themselves is, what who what kind of pipes is servicing uh, your your home? Because you got to know you should know.
0: So I went and looked at the uh, government website, and it says that. Uh, water, asbestos line pipes, water with asbestos is generally safe. What would you say to Mm -hmm.
6: that? Oh, good question. Just poked the bear. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason why we started this initiative uh, is because, and you know, look, I'm a lawyer by profession. Uh, I definitely would not uh, risk my reputation uh, by going hard on something that I didn't believe in. Um, But the truth of the matter is, um, we need to ask ourselves, we're, we're, we're being told not only locally, but nationally and across the world that in inhaling fibers, asbestos fibers, is detrimental to our health, irreversibly. Um, we see conversations happening uh, about uh, not to have asbestos fibers in our cosmetics. You know, so we have these conversations happening, so we can, we shouldn't inhale it, we shouldn't put it on our skin, but we should be drinking thousands of fibers per liter per day consistently from the day you move into your house, from the day you leave. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. So I, I acknowledge what they're saying, but I think that um, what I would actually respond with is the fact that. You know, we we live in a world where our laws and our policies and our research don't always align with each other, you know, and, and that's why asbestos-free water. Um, that's why we, I've started that initiative. That's why I'm asking Canadians to uh, to ask your local your your local politicians, your local uh, folks. You know, who is servicing my home? Uh, when's the last time this has been tested? What do I have to do to advocate for that regulation from a national level?
0: Tell me then, uh, I want to make sure that I understand this. If a pipe is lined with asbestos and it's not broken or hasn't degraded, is that safe And it, or or is it only unsafe when it starts to break down and pipe breakage?
6: That's a perfect, that's a, a great question. So I think that we have to acknowledge the fact that the majority of these pipes were, were, uh, were put in place in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in the country, okay? So there, the, the, the problem started essentially when research is starting to show that the pipes are at the end of their life now. So 40 years in, that's why these conversations are happening because technically, technically, uh, no, originally there should not have been um, the level of fibers that we are expecting to see right now. There would there may have been some, but there may not have been the fibers, the level of fibers that we see throughout the pipes as we will see today. Because what it's the deterioration of the pipes that causes the 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 fibers to kind of leach off into the water. And that deterioration can come from anything, you know, from from weather, from, from normal wear and tear, and from anything else. Um, and we can't really see it just by looking at it. And no one's ever looked at it.
0: So Canada can't be the only country in the world that ever put in asbestos lined pipes. So have you looked around the world globally to pull data and stats from other countries that may have looked at this?
6: Yeah, and I think that the easiest answer to that question is it was in the nineteen seventies when uh, the Environmental Protection Act, um, through a, through case law essentially, um, in the United States, started to measure, and regulate asbestos fibers in water. Why? Because they determined that it was a um, it, it was a potential health hazard. It was a public health hazard. Now they had a whole history about it they went through it and that was, so they've been regulating it since the 70s, but no other country has been regulating it. However, in the last decade, the amount of research through Italy, the UK, um, across the world that has been now focused on this issue uh, is exponential. I mean, because again, like I said, we're all starting to catch up. We're like, oh, whoa, these pipes are coming to the end of their their, their lifeline. we got a problem. Um, and just on that point, um, the health issues, and I think if, if there's anything really alarming, it's the fact that uh, health issues with ingested fibers, again, like the research is starting to come out, is said to be have a latency period between 20 and 30 years. So if you were a child drinking water, uh, you're actually not going to see that effect until you're in your 30s. Um, and I know there was an article that just came out in the CBC about two or three days ago about, you know, everyone kind of shrugging their shoulders, wondering why. Why, why do all these young kids have, young 30, 40-year-olds, like our, you know, whatever age, have, um, uh, are, are finding themselves with colon cancer? We, the exploration is needed, um, and that's the purpose of Asbestos-Free Water, is to, to, is to, uh, is to bring attention, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I'm sounding the alarm on it, I'm asking for people to join and just do the research. Uh, because the fact of the matter is, like you said, most people don't even know. The majority of the population just doesn't know.
0: Well, you've unlocked a new fear for me. I, I'm not going to lie to you. So how do we test for asbestos in our water? Is it a simple water test? Is it something that could be, does it have to be done in a laboratory? How do we know?
6: Yeah, and there's there's various sources to, to, to test it, right? So I think that, um, you know, I definitely am not going to promote <laughs> any one testing or another, but... But no, there are ways to test it in the water. And, and yes, it's basically testing your tap water. Um, but if I may, I don't believe it's your job to be testing your own water for hundreds of dollars. I think it's the municipality's job to be testing your water. They are the service providers of clean water into your homes.
0: For which you pay so, taxes.
6: For which you pay taxes for. So, I, you know, we, we need to start holding people accountable. Um, and, you know, they know. Like, it's not like they don't know. Uh, the National Research Council of Canada, Canada's own research council, has done numerous studies on this issue since the 70s. So if they didn't know, or if they weren't concerned about it, I highly doubt they would be putting that much effort into research about it. But I do believe that, you know, it's such a complicated, layered issue uh, it's health. It's it's public. It's public health. It's infrastructure. Uh, it's it's everything in between. So you know they're they're really trying to dig their feet in the sand and and suggest that somehow, you know, we should all just be drinking asbestos fibers in our water and that's that's cool. So what? T- I, I personally don't want to. want to.
0: I I agree. So what steps can we take then? Uh, we have about uh, thirty seconds left. So if people want to connect with you, find out more, or take some action in their community, what would you suggest?
6: Um, asbestosfreewater at gmail.com. Please email me. Um, uh, um, we're asking for regulations. We're asking for, um, you know, we'll have a template up on the website after the 25th. We're asking everyone to uh, send a message to your local authorities. Ask them to be testing your water. Ask Canada to be uh, regulating asbestos and water. And follow us on Instagram and um, and Rana Bukhari at Twitter because we'll be ramping up the, the dialogue as we head into the end of the month.
0: Incredible. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Uh, We'll have you back again with an update down the road, I'm sure.
6: Absolutely. Thank
0: you so much.
2: More of What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up. And now back to What She Said. Here's Candace Sampson.
0: Born and raised in Manhattan Beach, California, with dual Canadian citizenship and roots in Kingston, Ontario, Chloe Carolyn's music radiates a warm, authentic SoCal vibe with a subliminal message for people to live their truth and spread their light. Her ultimate goal, for nobody to ever feel alone. Her new EP The Awakening is coming out March 20th and Chloe is joining me today to discuss the message behind the music on this EP before we play Afraid of the Dark for you in its entirety. Welcome to the show, Chloe.
7: Yay, thank you for having me. So,
0: can you can you tell us a little bit more about the message behind your music and the inspiration for this EP?
7: Yeah, 100% for me, I really had gone through a sort of spiritual awakening right before COVID. And it was really the first time I had been alone, single in like five years. And um, that was that was big. It really gave me an opportunity to really kind of look within, find myself, figure out what I wanted, really. And it was definitely a trust, a learning of trust, learning how to have faith in the unknown, what was coming next, not needing to know what was coming next, per se. And um when I did that, you know, eventually the biggest blessing of my life like arrived <laughs> and um that's what Afraid of the dark was about, you know, and it was Perfect alignment, perfect timing once I really began to let go and trust that, which it's a very difficult process to, to go through.
0: <laughs> well, well, let's go a little bit deeper that on on the single afraid of the dark here, because uh, it's been released. It's beautiful. And so can you tell us more about the cosmic story behind it and how love showed up in the most unexpected way?
7: Yes, I can. Yeah, it was on a night that I was really just feeling like nothing is making sense. Everything that I think is supposed to happen isn't happening. And it's either going to make me question my faith entirely or because it's not making sense, I'm going to have to make some sense out of it or I'm going to lose my mind, basically. And I was like, I'm just going to trust that maybe it's it's bigger and better than I could have imagined. And I remember looking in the mirror and being like trust perfect timing, everything is working out, and I had a show that night, and it was the first time I was going to be playing these songs that I had written over this spiritual awakening um, for the first time, and I got up on stage, I knew I had a job to do, and I was to play those song, even though I wasn't feeling too amped up before the show. I played, and um, lo and behold, my, my now boyfriend was in the audience, and I got a message from him the next day because I had to leave right after, and um, he was the first person that I went on a on a date with in over a year and um, just so, so wonderful. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I literally couldn't have made it up if I tried.
0: All right. Well, we're going to play Afraid of the Dark, but you have a very big social media following. So can you share uh, where people can connect with you and keep up with you?
7: 100% yeah Um. on Instagram at Chloe Caroline Twitter at I'm Chloe Caroline TikTok at I'm Chloe Caroline ChloeCaroline.com just has all of my socials so definitely reach out I'll get back to you all right we're
0: going to put all of that in the liner notes when this goes out on podcast and right now we're going to listen to Afraid of the Dark by Chloe Caroline
7: amazing
8: Far.
0: said This week, stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson wherever you listen to podcasts to catch past episodes and extended interviews. I'll be back next week with more What She Said,
4: Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.
1: I'm Andrea
3: Askowitz, and I'm Allison Langer.